What do you guys normally do for fun? I pick on her a lot. <laughs> she hates her feet being tickled. That is true. Clean. Clean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, yep. that's pretty much, I think they would think that's what we do for fun. I like to go, I like to make him go shopping with me, oh. which he hates to do, oh, but. Target's the worst. <laughs> I hate it. Where do your parents act silly? My mom definitely singing out a key and just dancing terribly. This is number one. That's why none of us can dance very well. Um, kiss somebody on the, with hot sauce on the lips. Where do your parents act silly? Where do they do that at? Everywhere. Everywhere they can think of to be silly. Where don't we act That's silly? That's what I was going to say. <laughs> Hello, Heritage. I want to welcome all of you. I'm excited to dig into God's Word. And if you're a guest with us here at Rock Island or you're checking us out for the first time at Bettendorf or even connecting online, I'm glad you're here. This is week four of our Family Tree series. And, and this conversation is for everyone. It's not just for married couples, for parents or kids. The principles we're talking about apply to the people of God. So again, I'm glad you're here. We started this journey week one by looking at some of the basics of of what family is and how we can add quality to quantity. And then we dove into the deep end week two to look at how the patterns we live by define us and our family. And last weekend, we looked at how parent and child dynamics can play out. And if you missed any of those, I encourage you to get online and check them out. You can find them at heritageqc.com under the media tab, and you can see what we've been talking through in this journey. But today, I want to move into another area to talk about a principle called adult essence. Adult essence. And, and you may guess that, that this, like kidolatry last week, is a play on words. But this one has a double twist. Double twist. It goes this way. Adult essence can be spelled E-S-S-E-N-C-E. And it is the essence of being an adult. Adult essence. Being a mature man or woman. But if we take just one letter in that word, we take the second S, we make it a C, and we spell it E-S-C-E-N-C-E, we change the whole definition of the word. It now becomes a persistence in adolescence into adulthood. The persistence of adolescence into adulthood. That's, that's adult essence. An immature man or woman. And just one letter can change that definition entirely. Now, I realize we're having some fun with the play on words and the definitions. But it helps us understand the concept. In adolescence, is a very real thing. It actually ties back to a concept we looked at last week. We talked about the dynamic between parents and children. When a husband and wife begin to have a family, and they have a child, that small, cute, little, cuddly child that smells so good begins to grow. And they continue to grow until they no longer smell so nice, but they're still cute as a teenager, but they're just no longer smelling that great, maybe. But then they continue from teens into adult, and as an adult... Well, then they find a job, they find the love of their life, they, they leave and cleave and they get married and they begin their own family. And there's a natural progression for children as they grow, and in that progression, the dynamic between parents and children change. And Scripture says that we're to obey our parents and honor our father and mother. And here's where this gets sideways. And then again, this is just review from last week in case you missed it. That we obey in seasons, but we honor for a lifetime. The dependent children have a different relationship with their parents, and obedience looks very different for dependent children than it does for adult children. 
We obey in seasons, but we honor for a lifetime. And here's where adult essence gets into the equation. When an adult child does not fully live into this next season, but keeps a foot back here in this part of the equation, it actually begins to confuse obedience and honor, and it messes with the dynamic within the family, and it changes the trajectory of that child in life. It gets dysfunctional. And, and this is a bit of where we're going today. So you may have heard that, that growing old is mandatory. Ever heard that statement? Growing old is mandatory. We're all, we're all growing old every day. We're, we're growing old at the same rate, one day at a time. We're all getting older. But you may not know the backside of that statement. It says that growing up is optional. Now, you may be thinking the person next to you lives by this principle, and that's okay. <laughs> it's kind of funny. And it's also helpful to make sure that we can live life to the full. We don't check out. We don't give up. But it can also perpetuate a dysfunction. It can perpetuate the dysfunction of adult essence, where an adult does not grow into being a fully developed adult, doesn't step into that dynamic. Now, I, I get there's great value and beauty for being a kid at heart and staying a kid at heart, especially in spiritual things. It's a key to spiritual vitality. Jesus talked about this. In fact, his disciple Matthew captured it, and, and we can read it in Matthew 18, verse 3. It says that he, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little, what? Children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you've got to understand something. Children at this time and period where Jesus was talking and saying these words were, were, not, were considered more property than people. They didn't have any rights. And if you're a child in a family today, you may think, well, hey, that's, that's, my, that's my deal right now. But listen, it's way worse than that. They, they were considered to be less valued people in society. They were to be looked down upon, not looked up to. So when Jesus elevates children in this moment, he turns the social norm on its head. And not just as examples of, of innocence and purity. What he was doing was setting a benchmark of humility and selflessness. And what Matthew 18.3 is really for us is not an invitation to immaturity, but a call to humility that leads to the kingdom of heaven. And that's incredibly important. Because one of the things we talked about last week, and this is stepping back to this statement, we never want to forfeit what we want most for what we want now. We never want to forfeit what we want most for what we want now. And I think that parents and kids both do this. Parents do this when they give in to whining because they're just fed up. When, when they take the path of least resistance because they're tired. When, when they stop doing the right thing. When they stop enforcing what they said. Every time we do that as parents, we are forfeiting what we want most. The well-being of our children. The maturing of our children. The spiritual vitality of our children for what we want now. Which is peace in mind and a break in the moment. And this principle applies to all of us. And when we do the same thing in our relationship with God, we forfeit what we want most for what we want now in our desires and our appetites. Don't forfeit what you want most for what you want now. Instead, what I want to encourage you to do today is to do the right thing. To do the right thing. To do the what thing? Do the right thing. But do the right thing at the right time. At the right time. Now, that may seem like a very simple concept, but I think it's rather hard for us to live out, to do the right thing at the right time. And the best example I have for this is simply what I want to share with you now. You know, as a former Pennsylvania state trooper and as a law-abiding citizen, what I'm about to share with you serves as a public service announcement for all of the residents of the Quad City area, for their benefit. 
to the drivers on I-74. Please stop yelling and expressing your rage at those who proceed to the merge point before merging. I get that those of you who read the signs and merge early believe you're doing the right thing, so much so that you feel justified when you block both lanes or you swerve to keep those from going around you. But those who are proceeding to the merge point to merge are doing the right thing at the right time. Driving on a highway is not the same as standing in a movie line. And proceeding to the merge point to merge is doing the right thing at the right time. Hang with me for just a moment. Traffic laws, many of them are designed simply to keep us safe and traffic moving effectively. And the most effective way to move into a, a reduction of lane is to have vehicles remain in their path of travel, remain in their lane until they reach the merge point, and then to alternate entering into the single lane. This is called the zipper merge. Say zipper, people. Zipper. There we go. It's the zipper merge. Now, Federal and state traffic agencies have studied this thing for a year, and they have determined that the zipper merge increases the flow of traffic by up to 15% faster. Go 15% faster, and it reduces the backlog by 40%. So people, please quit yelling and expressing your rage at the people who proceed to the merge point and merge. They're doing the right thing at the right time and saving all of us time. This has been a public service announcement for those who are trying to do the right thing at the right time. Okay, now I feel better. <laughs> Look, doing the right thing at the right time is great counsel. Whether you're on I-74, you're in a construction zone, or in life, and in your family. We've been using as a foundational passage something that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 6. And, and what Moses did, he called the people of God to remember the instructions of God, but he did it in a specific way. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy 6. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, especially merging people. This is biblical. This is biblical. When you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Look, this connects directly to doing the right thing at the right time. So what we have been doing as a church family is looking at a grid of four different things through the four different times. Those four areas are our time, what we're communicating in those times, what our role is and what our goal is. The, these four things become kind of top-level look for us of how we engage the four times that Moses identified, which we're saying are morning, drive, meals, and night. A.M., drive, meals, and P.M. Those things slide over the time column, and they influence what we're communicating, what role we have, and the goal that we're trying to achieve. So in week two, we talked about what we're trying to communicate. So it goes like this. We're doing encouraging words in the morning, informal dialogue on a drive, at mealtimes is formal conversation, and at night is intimate words. That's what we're trying to communicate. The role we have in each of those four realities we looked at last week, where we're a teacher in the morning, a friend on the drive, a counselor at meals, and a coach at night. When we do those things at those times, it positions us to live out a goal for each of those realities, and that's what I want to share with you today. The four goals are to establish values in the morning, interpret life on the drive, build intimacy at meals, and at night instill purpose. So when we play this whole thing out, what ends up happening in the morning, we're trying to communicate encouraging words as a teacher to establish values. On a drive, we're using informal dialogue as a friend to interpret life. At mealtimes, we're having formal conversation as a counselor to build intimacy. And at night, we're using intimate words as a coach to instill purpose. These, these four things play directly into the scenario that we're talking about. 
And, and again, we, we've got some questions to help you with bedtime dialogue and conversation in your note guide. We also want to encourage you if you have preschool or elementary age students to, to download the ParentQ app because it, it's, a, it's an app that connects directly to these principles. It ties into the curriculum we use across our Heritage Network. It's just a really helpful tool as a parent to live into this. And I've got to tell you, this is a great place to start. If you've never done this before, or you feel like you've missed the boat, it is not too late to start. You can start here, you can start right now by trying to add quality to quantity and investing in your family, investing in your kids born physically or your kids born spiritually to make a difference that lasts for generations to come. It's a great place to start. Now, living life to the full is a journey. And on that journey, we move through seasons and stages. And whether we like it or not, as we move through those seasons and stages, we end up understanding that growth is required. Growth is required for us to move through those stages and seasons, which inherently means, therefore, that change is essential. It's essential. As uncomfortable as change can be, as, as much as you may want to resist it, the moment we stop changing or the moment we resist change, we stop growing. And we can't do that and still follow Jesus. The, the gospel, the, the great commission, both require change and, re, and require growth. And when we stop growing, we actually start dying. When we stop growing physically, we start declining. When leaders stop growing and learning, they actually stop leading. In a very similar reality for us and our family and our kids is that growth is required. Therefore, change is essential. Think about it this way, that, that God has a, a basic design and progression for us to move through those stages of life. We could break it down lots of different ways, but the basic progression involves what some would describe as eight stages of life with approximate ages. And you can write these down or not, I'm just going to throw them up here so you can see them. The first is from zero to one and a half years old is the infancy stage. From one and a half to three years old is early childhood from 3 to 6 is play age. From 6 to 12 is school age. Now, give and take on the years a bit, but these are the general bracketing for these stages of life. When we get to 12 to 18, now we're in adolescence. From 18 to 40 is young adult. 40 to 65 is middle adulthood. And 65 and beyond is late adulthood. These are general bracketings around four different stages of life that as we grow, we must embrace the changes around them to live fully into the next stage. It's pretty straightforward. But something happens very uniquely between the adolescence and young adult categories. It's a tipping point in maturity. It's the moment that we set aside the elements of adolescence and we pick up the emotional maturity, the maturity of being an adult. And there are specific markers that help us understand when we've done that. And, and sociologists and psychologists and even our society in general has, has bracketed a few things that say, look, this is when we're actually living into adulthood. Things like moving out on your own, becoming financially independent, finishing school, getting a job. For some, it means getting married and starting your own family. Those could be indicators of making that transition from adolescence into young adulthood. So when we don't make that transition, here are some things that might, we might see. We're still living at home dependent upon our, our parents. We're not financially independent in part or at all. We haven't finished school. We're in perpetual school mode without a job. Those would be indicators of living in that adult essence and not stepping into the next season as a whole. And when we stop growing in our faith, in our practices, we start dying. It's true physically, it's true in, the, in our physical bodies, it's true in the church body. There is a God-designed progression, and parents play a key role in helping their kids, both their physical 
kids and their spiritual kids to live into the next season. Now, one of the most often quoted verses when it comes to how we raise our children is Proverbs 22.6. You may know this passage. You may be able to recite it from memory. It says to start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Now, that sounds great. We hear it, and we think, teach well, end well. But it's really not that simple, and it's not even what that scripture is saying. When we think that that is all that it's saying, then we misunderstand Scripture, and then that leads us to misapply it, which creates, I believe, a burdensome dilemma for parents, because parents end up thinking that if I parent well enough, my kids will be good to go. It sounds good. It even sounds noble, but it creates a pressure to be good enough, to do all the right things so that our kids turn out fine, and if they don't, well, then it's our fault and somehow we have failed them. That thinking positions parents to live and function as deliverer instead of as developer. And it's wrong. It's wrong. Look, I don't want to get too far off task, but I want to help parents and grandparents to understand something. You should seek to bring the heart of the child to the heart of their Savior. We do that by adding quality to the quantity of time we have, by using morning drive meals and night times to teach and invest. Parents can and should give good advice to put kids on the right path. But the ultimate development of a person's character is in their own hands. People get to choose. To see this proverb as a promise positions parents to see themselves as failures if their kids choose differently. Yet I have seen kids in the same family, with the same parents, with the same upbringing, live very different lives. Because we each get to choose. To look at this proverb as a promise sets parents up to be deliverer rather than to be developer. And it tells parents that if your kids struggle, if you're not good enough, you didn't do enough. Or, on the flip side, if your kids don't struggle, then you're awesome and you are your kid's deliverer. But neither is inherently true. We can and we do influence our kids and our children. But as we saw in week two, each generation is responsible for what they do in life. So, what do we do with Proverbs 22.6? Well, there's a difference between a principle and a promise. And many Proverbs are principles, more than promises. They're not inherently promises. And we need to follow the principles and avoid depending on them as promises, because that's not how God intended us to live. I want you to think about it this way. Because God loves us, he allows us to choose, right? We all get to choose whether we're going to follow him or not. He gives us the opportunity to choose how we live. And in that process, he teaches us. He reveals himself to us through lots of different means, scripture, people, creation, his spirit. And he teaches us in that journey. And he does it flawlessly because he's perfect. Yet, many of us as his children stray. So did he fail to teach us well enough? Or did he allow us to choose? He allows us to choose. Let me change the scenario for a moment. Did Jesus fail to properly train Judas so much so that he betrayed him? 
No. Judas chose. And we all get to choose. People choose. And the fact that people choose should influence the way we apply this verse. It's a principle. Now look, parents, there is huge potential for our children to hold fast to what they learn from us. Early training secures a habitual living pattern that that we want to instill in our kids. So be intentional. Be careful. Be faithful. Teach the way they should go. But be careful not to elevate your identity in that. You are not deliverer. You are called to be developer. You will be accountable for what you teach. It matters how we parent. We can develop a context and, and, and develop our kids in a manner that allows them to, to easily choose the right thing, or we can develop them in a manner where it makes it harder for them to choose the right thing. There is a generational ripple that is very real in life. But you are not their deliverer. Jesus is their deliverer. He is the only one, and we each get to choose. Now, that being said, the good news about Proverbs 22.6, and it, it holds a reassuring principle for us as parents. It, it, it's true that parents who train up their children in the way they should go can trust that normally, normally, their faithful investment will lead to the spiritual well-being of their children. But it is not an absolute guarantee because people get to choose. Are you with me? Children learn from us. Let me show you what I mean by, from an example of, of one of our own church families and, and, and one of the ways this ripple has worked in a healthy and impactful way. Check this out. I think uh, three, three different things that really uh, stick with me in terms of my own childhood um, as it relates to my parents. Uh, the very first thing is just uh, the reality that um, my parents made it a point to uh, have a personal time of devotions. Uh, so I would, you know, see evidence of that. Um, I would wake up at five o'clock on, uh, I don't know, any morning, uh, wanting to watch Transformers or whatever cartoons were on in the 80s, and see my dad uh, with his knees on the ground, hunched over the couch, uh, clearly in a time of prayer. And I would see evidence of my mom. I'd see a Bible open or a notebook where she had, had taken notes about scripture. Um, so I, I would see evidence of her uh, and her pursuit of the Lord. And because they set that precedent, it was something really easy then for me to slip into and uh, would, would take bits and pieces of, of what both of them did and, and still use it to this day. So it's, it's just such a, a blessing to have that, uh, that example uh, set in front of me. Uh, the second thing is uh, just talking in terms of uh, their identity. Um, when I was a really small kid, uh, I didn't think of my parents uh, in terms of what they did to bring money in. I always thought of them in terms of who they were as it relates to how they connected to heritage, how they connected to the church. Um, I remember one story, I don't even know why this is still in my memory, but uh, my first grade teacher asked me, uh, what does your dad do? And my very first gut-level reaction uh, and answer to her was, uh, my dad's a soul winner, you know? Uh, and, and I don't know why I answered that way other than that's what he talked about when he was home. And so uh, I knew him as uh, someone connected in evangelism and heritage, and I knew him less as a printer at Eagle, which is what he did at the time. And so, um, you know, and, and, and mom was the same way. I, I always, you know, connected to her to what she was doing at church. And so I, I look back and I think, 
You know, my parents were, my, my dad was the evangelism guy, my mom was kind of the worship arts person, always involved in singing and music and instruments and piano. And so uh, that made it really easy then for the time that I came home from a Wesleyan youth convention uh, back in junior high and I announced to them, oh, by the way, God has called me into ministry. Uh, and when I did that, there was no hesitation on their part. You know, some parents might get bummed out by that news, um, but my mom and dad didn't. They were affirming. Uh, they gave me every opportunity to pursue that dream and that calling. They resourced that dream and calling, and it, was, it wasn't any big deal to them. Like, it wasn't disappointing. Uh, so I'll always remember that. Uh, and then finally, um, in terms of uh, them connecting me into a spiritual family really early, uh, that was really important. Uh, I'm a parent now, so I know that there are seasons as a parent where I can't uh, maybe be completely available to my kids. There are seasons of busyness, or maybe there was an illness or a tragedy or something. And, uh, and by my parents' decision of plugging me into that spiritual family early, there were other voices that were able to speak into my life, maybe in times when they weren't able to as much, or uh, maybe when I wasn't receiving what they were, what they were giving. And so, you know, I, I think of voices um, from the past of Heritage in terms of my involvement. I think of like the, the Sue Jacks and the Patty Bray. Uh, I think of the Mike Tates and the Craig Coopers who uh, would come alongside of me and speak into my life and just invest, invest in me and pour into me. Um, and, and sometimes uh, uh, gave a differing voice or a voice that I was able to listen to at a, at a particular season um, when my parents maybe weren't able to share. Um, so I think that was such a huge thing. Um, I've told people, I can't imagine who I would be, I can't imagine where I would be or what I'd even be doing without the influence of Heritage Church in my life. And that was my parents' decision very early, very intentionally plugging me into a spiritual family. Um, so I, I just have a lot to owe uh, to my parents, uh, just so much, uh, so much respect and love for both of them. And, uh, and I certainly hope that, that I'm able to uh, even give a fraction of, of love and support and uh, kind of a, a spiritual trajectory approach uh, to my kids as, as they were to me. Uh, they, were, they were fantastic. Sure, yep. It matters how we parent. And that early training establishes habitual living. There is a generational ripple. And you are called as a parent not to serve as deliverer, but as developer within your family. You know, I, uh, Josh has been serving as a pastor in Wheaton for a number of years, and, and I'm, I'm thrilled to let you know that he and his family will be joining our ministry team this summer to serve in adult ministries, uh, primarily here at the Rock Island campus. And I love the way that God's bringing that back around full circle. And I'm excited because he has a deep love for the Lord, but a love for heritage and a love for these cities. And as he steps into this next season, I just ask you to be praying for him and us as they make their transition. But I know that God's calling him here to help us step into the next season. And I'm excited to see how God brings back that gener generational ripple back around through him as he makes investments here. There is a real generational ripple. We're not to be that deliverer for our kids. We are to be the developer in our kids. But I think as adults, sometimes we need to relearn that, our, that we have an inherent value and purpose because of who we are, not how much we accomplish. This passage, this Proverbs 22, 6, is, is, it is just as much about who we are as what we do. 
It's, it's the idea that our being leads to our doing. And, and who we are as parents, serving as developer, matters. It, our being should lead to doing. And easily, I think we get distracted in the journey of life from understanding what God calls us to. And I actually think there's a principle that, that is kind of like bookends in the journey, where I think that the young in life tend to chase significance. I think the young tend to chase significance. They're looking for that identity. They're looking for that influence. They're trying to establish who they are. The young tend to chase significance, while the old tend to chase security. And those kind of serve as two bookends for how we in life can get distracted in the journey. And I, get, I understand why the young pursue significance, and I understand why the old pursue security. You're looking for that care and that stability, while the young are looking for that identity piece. But all along in the whole journey, God calls all of us to chase him and to pursue dependence. Not to look for significance and security, but to chase dependence on him. Regardless of who you are and where you're at in your journey, the Lord invites all of us to a place of dependence on him. And when we live that way, everything begins to change. Look, let's take a moment to cap that there's a section of scripture in 1 Kings chapter 2 where, where this is principles captured a little bit in the exchange between a father and a son. And if you've got a Bible, you can turn there and hop to it, but it's, it's also in the note guiding up on the screen here in a second. This is David, who was king of Israel, who's, who's actually serving in that role as developer of his son Solomon, and he's, he's giving Solomon a final charge. He's, he's investing in his son, and his son is in that adolescent young adult bracket. He's about ready to transition in that dynamic, and many believe he was, he was like literally in the 18, 19-year-old window when this conversation takes place. And here's what David says to his son. He says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And he's saying, look, I'm, I'm about to die. He said, so be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. These words of David are just packed full of lots of good stuff, but I simply want to look at one thing today. Because I think what David does is he articulates very clearly that being leads to doing. And I think too many of us seek to do things in order to become something. But God says who we are ought to determine what we do, and our identity should be in him, not the other way around. And I see what David's doing in this scenario is calling Solomon to his being. He literally says, be strong. He's starting with, understand, like Solomon, understand who you are. It is your being that leads to doing. He's calling him to grow in strength in the Lord. He's calling him to stand, not to cave, don't forfeit, don't choose comfort, but to prevail. And he's calling him to do that like a man, like a man. And what he's doing in that statement is he's really calling him to live into his masculinity as an adult, to be a great man, to be a great champion. And, he, and he's He's not necessarily elevating manhood, because I think if David had been talking to a daughter, he would have said a very similar thing to his daughter and said, be strong and act like a woman. He is not elevating masculinity. He's elevating adulthood, and he's doing it out of a focus on our being, which leads to doing. But once he does that, he moves into verse 3, and he, and he moves into the doing reality, where he says, look, observe what the Lord your God requires. This is the actual action piece where our being leads to our doing. And when we observe, we're talking about keeping, we're talking about guarding and heeding. It actually ties back to what Moses said about what we do in the morning, on the road, at night, and, and, at, and at home. He's talking about those four realities. But then he continues by saying, walk in obedience 
and keep his decrees and commands and his laws and his regulations. Now, when we see these last two walk, this walk and keep reality, I actually think there's two things to understand about this. That when, when God interacts with us, he reveals himself and his instructions that apply to everyone. He actually has these general things that apply to everybody. They're broad truths that reveal his general will. We find them in scripture. He reveals them through, his, through uh, creation. But these are things that apply broadly to everybody. But, but then there are things that, re, that he reveals specifically for us and to us individually. They're not divergent from the general will. They're just more specific. Like who to marry, what, what job to pursue, when to capitalize on a moment to go talk to somebody else. They're, they're more specific aspects of his will for us. So when we're talking about keeping his commands and decrees, I really think that's more the application of the general will. He has already articulated in Scripture how we're supposed to live. So to keep these decrees and laws, this is following the general will. But when we talk about walking in obedience, I believe that reflects both general and specific. It's a combination of what he has said in his word, but what he has also spoken by his spirit and what he calls us to individually. It's a unique combination where walking in obedience reflects general and specific, the things that God has called us directly to do. And it positions us to live in dependence on him. Because if we're trying to chase significance and security as opposed to chasing him in dependence, we can't separate and understand when he's calling us to specific things. Because we're chasing the wrong things and our focus has shifted. We are to chase him, not significance and not security. And, and I think David really was resisting this at this late stage of life, that security pursuit, and he's calling his son to follow in his footsteps, to, to follow God and to trust God for both significance and security by depending on him. And, and that's important because I truly believe that it's always folly to follow anyone who doesn't follow God. It is always folly to follow anyone who doesn't follow God. And I think for many of us, we're positioned in families where this is our temptation. This is actually the scenario that we're set up for, to follow a family pattern, to follow a pattern of the world that is not going to position us to follow the general or specific will of God in our life. That we're really tempted to follow a family dynamic or pattern that doesn't position us to obey his decrees and walk in them. But stepping into adulthood and out of adult essence is an opportunity to be strong, to act like an adult, and follow and depend on God. Because it's always follow to follow anyone who doesn't follow God. So let's move this to the so what. And I really just want to talk about one thing. One thing. And it's a principle that undergirds much of what we're talking about in this series and certainly today. The, the reality is that true maturity is a journey toward dependence. True maturity is a journey toward dependence. Look, in the physical world, when, when we are born, we, we start highly dependent upon our family for everything. But as we grow older, we become more and more independent. And that is the way God designed us to grow physically. That is the way it is supposed to happen. We start in great dependence and we move toward independence. That's how we grow physically. But spiritually, it is the exact opposite. We actually start in great independence spiritually, in our sin, in our willful choices, our rebellion, in great independence, and we are to grow in increasing dependence until we end up with the faith of a child. 
This is how we're to spiritually grow. And, I, and many of you may be struggling in your journey and you're stuck in adult essence spiritually because you don't understand that it's moving from independence to dependence. You're trying to prove yourself by doing things to become something. So you are, you are thinking that you're, you're on this dependence place and you have to become more independent so you will do more things to become something. But that is the exact opposite of how you grow spiritually. We grow spiritually by moving from independence to dependence to we have the faith of a child. And true maturity, true maturity is a journey toward dependence. So that being said, I, I, I know that God calls you to trust him. In fact, here's something that Paul wrote to Timothy. Here's what he said. This is from, from, first, from 2 Timothy chapter 3. But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. It's an element of trust that takes place in the dynamic between the Heavenly Father and ourselves when we choose dependence. When we choose to give our life to Jesus, we find forgiveness and we can walk with God. And that, that true maturity is a journey toward dependence. So, that being said, I, I wonder where God is asking you to trust him next. What is God asking you to trust him next in? Where is he saying, look, I'm asking you to step. I'm asking you to do the right thing at the right time. I'm asking you to step in the journey of greater dependence on me and not independence. I'm asking you to not pursue security or to pursue significance, but to pursue me. Where is God asking you to trust him in this journey, in your family, in your own personal relationship. God has a very specific next step for you. He has given a general will, but he also has a specific call for you. And where is he asking you to trust him next so that you will live in greater dependence, so that you will mature to the full measure of what it means to walk with him through Jesus Christ? You have a next step. I hope you take that and do the right thing at the right time for his glory. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that as we gather as your people, that you work and move and you speak. God, I thank you that even when we have maybe lingered and held back in, in places out of comfort, uh, maybe even out of fear, we haven't stepped boldly into next seasons with you, uh, you are still gracious and you forgive. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people who do the right thing at the right time so that we can bring you honor that we would do those things with complete dependence on you, not doing them in order to become something, but out of who we are in you, we do those things. And we would not be a people who are distracted by chasing significance or security, but we would chase you. And we would chase a posture of dependence on you so that you can accomplish what you want in and through us for your glory. Father, I pray for those that maybe have not yet made a decision to follow your son, that you even now would whisper your love to them. And for all of us, Lord, that we would be able to take the next step where we need to trust you to live fully into who you call us to be. I love the way you work and move in our life and you teach us by your word and your spirit. I pray that you are pleased and glorified through this time. I love you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.